Welcome to everyone who's joined us from near or far, and thank you for tuning in and spending your time with us. You're listening to Faith Connections Creativity of Love podcast, and my name is Sabrina, Program Director for Faith Connections. We are one of six Bumpon Ministries, established in 2005 by the Sisters of St. Joseph of Toronto, as a way to connect with and minister to young adults. You can find more information about our ministry on our website, faithconnections.ca. We're continuing our Creativity of Love series, asking ourselves how we can actively prepare a better time in these days and be beside each other in love, patience, and action. Faith Connections Program Coordinator Erica continues our thoughts on this expansive topic with three sets of conversations. We know that this is a long episode for its runtime, but we think that you'll appreciate its depth. We've focused it on exploring what a just transition is, and with our guests that offer us three very different and unique perspectives. Firstly, we chat with Sister Sue Wilson from the Office for Systemic Justice for the Federation of Sisters of St. Joseph of Canada, and Leah Watkiss, Ministry Director for the Ministry of Social Justice, Peace and Creation Care, about what some of their ongoing work has been and all the different elements of justice that it encompasses. We then chat with Liam Hildebrand, Executive Director and Chairman for Iron and Earth, to learn more about what the economic reality is for workers in one of Canada's most important industry, oil and gas, and the potential a just transition holds for everyone. Lastly, we look at the impact on these issues on some local youth with Miranda Bach, co-founder of Community Climate Council. We hear about how young people local to the Toronto area are bringing up the rear, so to speak, with their forward thinking, advocacy, and action. Out of deep respect for the Indigenous peoples in Canada, we acknowledge that Faith Connection works on the territories of the Wendat, the Anishinaabeg Nation, the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, and Mississaugas of the Credit First Nations. We also recognize the contributions and enduring presence of all First Nations, Métis, and Inuit people in Ontario and the rest of Canada. As settlers, may our learning today help us create and support true acts of respect and reciprocity. Well, welcome Sister Sue and Leah. We're so glad to have both of you with us today. Thanks for being with us. So I'm going to jump right into the questions. I know we have lots to discuss and we've got some timelines. So let's let's get to it. Uh, tell us about yourself and the work you're involved with. Uh, so my name is Leah Watkiss. I am the Ministry Director of the Ministry for Social Justice, Peace and Creation Care with the Sisters of St. Joseph of Toronto. So the role of the Ministry for Social Justice is to try and create a world that is transformed by gospel values of social justice, peace and creation care. Um, so we focus on a few specific areas of social justice at the moment. Those are labor exploitation and human trafficking, the climate emergency, and indigenous justice. Um, in those areas and more, um, we have our three components of education, advocacy, and prayer. So in all of the social justice work that we do, we ensure that we are covering those uh, three bases. In a nutshell, that's what we do. Thanks, Leah. Sister Sue, 
Okay, so um, I'm a sister of St. Joseph. I have a PhD in theology with a focus on social ethics. So um, the Office for Systemic Justice pretty much felt like a perfect fit for me, and I've been here for oh, about 20 years. As the name systemic justice would suggest, we try to contribute to changing the structures that are shaping injustices in Canada and around the world. So that means working with lots of other groups to change policies which create barriers for marginalized people, um, people living in poverty, working in low-wage jobs, low-quality jobs, as well as working to change policies that harm ecosystems. So we make submissions to government committees. Uh, we do direct advocacy with senior policy people and politicians on those issues. Our work also includes engaging the public in conversations with the aim to create greater awareness of some of the assumptions and the narratives that underlie so many of our unjust structures. And, you know, at, at the same time to identify more life-giving narratives and, and better policy options. So we work with all levels of government, municipal, provincial, federal, and we're also working closely with the NGO office, which the global body of Sisters of St. Joseph have at the uh, United Nations. Wonderful. You're both involved in such important work and far-reaching, so thank you for sharing. Sister Sue, how about we start with you on this question. In your own words, what is the just transition? To me, a just transition is about actions that integrate economic, environmental, and social priorities. And I see that as being quite different from the current uh, messaging around balancing economic and environmental priorities. Uh, the balancing tends to um, lead to opposing actions which cancel each other out, like signing on to the Paris Accord for Climate Change and giving subsidies to the fossil fuel industry. So it's kind of working against each other. I think in its narrowest understanding, the just transition is about ensuring that as Canada shifts to renewable energy sources, affected workers will have the supports they need to get reskilled and to land safely in, in a new job. It's driven by the assumption that workers moving from high carbon industries to green ones should have their wage levels and benefits protected. But I, many people are speaking about a broader understanding of, of a just transition. They want to move toward an economy that creates economic fairness and, and social justice while working toward the decarbonized future. So it's not just climate action and it's not just energy transition. It's, um, it, it's like a climate driven social, cultural, ecological and, and economic transition. Um, I think in, in the process of taking on climate change, we have the opportunity to create good jobs. We can invest strategically in excluded communities. Uh, we can make reparations for past wrongs done to Indigenous communities. And, and we can build a care economy that has strong social protections, you know, by guaranteeing full access to things like health care, child care, senior care, and, and, and more. Thank you so much, Sister Sue. Uh, Leah, your turn. The just transition, in your own words. It's uh, when I saw that question, I was like, oh, man, I could write like a 
an essay on this. You could write a book on this. <laughs> it's hard to... Yes, so overall, I'd say the just transition is what the Ministry for Social Justice is about. It's about creating this world that is transformed by values of social justice, peace, and creation care. Um, on the surface, it's about moving from sus- uh, fossil fuel energies to sustainable energy systems. Um, but if we really want to have a just transition, we also need to address other injustices. We need an intersectional approach. And by intersectional, I mean, we have to look at all of the different components that are playing a role in environmental destruction. We have to look at environmental racism and how communities of color are disproportionately affected by the climate emergency. Uh, We have to look at indigenous sovereignty. We have to look at sexism and the way that that, um, women are disproportionately affected by the climate emergency and problems. We have to look at colonialism. We have to look at ableism. We have to ensure that when we're moving ahead with this new idea of a new economy and a new way of being, that nobody is being left behind and nobody is being pushed to the fringes and on the margins. We have to bring all of these people in together to be part of one human community. At the Canadian level, this looks like, you know, we want to make sure that the oil and gas workers who are in Alberta are going to be retrained and that they're going to be able to get great jobs in the new energy sector. We also need to look seriously at Indigenous sovereignty and uh, our treaties with Indigenous communities on this land. Internationally, it looks also like um, reparations and payments. I mean, our country got rich and a lot of other rich countries got rich off the backs of poorer countries who are now disproportionately suffering the effects of the climate emergency. So we need to ensure that those poorer countries who enabled us to generate wealth are now receiving the supports and the finances that they need to make this transition as well. Essentially, what it comes down to is a just transition involves kind of dismantling this capitalist system as we know it, Um, moving away from individualism, moving away from corporate greed, and moving towards a model of living and being in which we care about the common good, and we reassess our social contract and what it means to live in community. I'm going to skip to our fourth question and ask right now, how with these Amazing aspirations. How is change created in the complex systems that surround the just transition? That's a really big question. <laughs> First, I think it's important to see the the bigger structural links between climate change and inequality. The opportunity for this social and economic transition exists because many of the same factors that are destroying the climate and the planet are also creating perverse levels of inequality, uh, social and economic exclusion, crumbling social protections, uh, a fraying social fabric. Let let me just highlight a few few, uh, factors that are kind of uh, at the top of discussions these days. Things like loss of government revenues. Uh, For decades, we've been pulling money away from governments through tax cuts. 
and making it difficult for governments to address social and environmental issues effectively. At the same time, we've been privatizing the public sphere for that same amount of time. We've been allowing profit-motivated businesses to be shaping our responses to things like climate change, affordable housing, health care, child care, senior care. All of these areas can be put at, at the heart of a just recovery for the economy and our society if we make public investments in them. Many of those are, are ways to grow the economy without creating a huge carbon footprint. Another kind of big structural uh, pattern is the deregulation of corporations and how that has contributed to environmental damage and growing inequality through weak labor standards. So if we can re-regulate corporations, we can reverse those trends. We can get some strong environmental regulations. We can get stronger labor rights, create incentives for paying a living wage for, for all jobs. And, and I think another big pattern is we need to rethink consumption. Um, especially, uh, in the, in the global north, we have come to expect that the things we purchase will be inexpensive. So inexpensive that they're downright cheap. They're made to be replaced. Um, they're rarely repaired. You know, so that kind of thing encourages us to buy more than we need. It encourages us to use things for a little while, if we use them at all, and then to throw them away, knowing that the next cheap thing made somewhere, you know, halfway around the world is waiting for us at the store. So there's like an endless stream of cargo ships, jets, and trucks moving raw resources, uh, moving parts and finished products all around the world, and, and using fossil fuels the whole time. So we need to start asking ourselves which goods can be produced locally if we're willing to pay more so workers can have a living wage how can we support local farmers so that they can compete with cheap imports i'm not talking about the end of global trade just just a rethinking of what we can do locally so those are kind of big picture shifts that we that need to happen and a lot of that is is changing the way that that we are thinking about the economy but then there are there are specific policies that we can be urging the government to implement um, things like uh, stopping subsidies to the fossil fuel industry. We could create programs for encouraging the retrofitting of homes and commercial buildings. That would, that would go a long way towards reducing greenhouse gas. We can have public investment in, in child care, um, which is so important if we, if we want to get women back into the labor market after this pandemic. But um, we also need to be investing in things like senior care, health care, pharma care, so that we're strengthening the social protections and we're ready for the next crisis. And, and kind of a, a wider theme there that affects almost everyone is, is stronger labor protection, including for migrant workers. So I think there are lots of policy things we can do, but at the same time, we need to be looking at, at um, some of the bigger assumptions that have been shaping the, the policies that we have now. Leah, question to you. How is change created in the complex systems that surround the just transition? Yeah, I just want to respond a little bit to what uh, Sister Sue was pointing out when we talk about um, planned obsolescence and the disposable culture that we live in. I think 
my niece is looking at buying a new iPad because her current one is four years old and to repair it will cost almost $300. So we need to change the way that we make things. We need to change the way that we repair things. It shouldn't cost as much to repair a four-year-old product as it does almost as sort of like buy new. At the we need change at lots of different levels, and I think Sister Sue did a really good job of pointing out some sort of specific policies that we could have. So I'm going to speak a little bit more broadly. Broadly, I think what we need to do is stop this polarization that's happening. It's not like oil and gas workers versus, you know, the left-wing hippie environmentalists. A just transition is going to help us all. Um, and I think it's really unfortunate that it has become this uh, political tool and that it has become so divisive and we are polarized in these, these separate groups. We need to kind of come together, recognize that this is a necessary change. We do need to change the energy sector in order to address this climate emergency and we need to work together to do that in a way that uh, ensures that everybody is going to benefit from this transition well maybe not the greedy corporations but <laughs> that as a society you know we're going to be raising everybody up and creating a better society and a better community um, by making these changes. It's interesting to see we need a lot of change at the international level, um, like with these summits that we hold and these promises that we make, like the Paris Agreement, that those are important. But it's interesting to me to see how um, it's really at the more local level that we're seeing more changes. Like a lot of cities are really taking taking this on and making changes at that local level that's really driving change and presenting models of what we can do in the rest of the world. So that's interesting to see um, that dynamic play out. But we need everybody to agree that, yes, this is an issue. Yes, we need to address it. Like, this shouldn't be a, a disagreement <laughs> that we need to care for this common home that we all share. Shifting gears a little bit, but not entirely, uh, what is the role of the church in the just transition? Let, let me say, first of all, that I think social and ecological justice are at the heart of our faith, and, and we can find dominant themes in, in scripture that, that account for that being at the heart of our faith. And that's why many of the Christian churches and faith-based groups in Canada, including a, a good number of religious orders, have joined together in the past few months to start a project that's called The Love of Creation. Uh, it's a clear signal that we see climate change and a just transition as both a, as both spiritual and moral issues. The, the churches as, as a collective body are concerned that as a society, we're not moving strongly enough on the issue of climate change. And we believe that by mobilizing the faith communities, we can make a difference. So 
Um, there are kind of three key areas in, of involvement in this project. There's political advocacy, um, and that will include uh, church leaders uh, talking to politicians about climate change and a just transition. There's theological reflection on these issues. So trying to get the message uh, spread a little wider that this really is integral to our faith. And then there's the engagement of members in climate conversations. And, and this gets back to what Leah was saying earlier. We need these conversations to happen in safe spaces where we can start to break through some of the polarizations that we have on the issues. You know, some key principles that the group highlights would be the need to, to listen to Indigenous groups and to listen to youth groups on this issue because both have been leaders in this work. Very shortly, we're going to be circulating an e-petition that calls for a just transition and for stronger policies to address climate change. So it calls for uh, committing to reducing greenhouse gas emissions by 60% below 2005 levels. It calls for investments in a just transition. It points to the need to honor the rights of Indigenous peoples to commit equal support to climate change adaptation and mitigation measures in the global south. And that, again, gets back to what Leah was saying, is that the global north has most of the responsibility for creating greenhouse gas emissions. And so we need to step up and do the work of helping all countries in the world adapt to the climate change realities and, and to mitigate as much as possible. So, and, and I would just say that a, a fourth area that has been more recently um, added to the petition has been to respond to the pandemic in the global south, which is, you know, we see the pandemic devastating our economy here, but it, it's going to be more stark in the global south just because the social protections are not in place. Leah, on to you. What is the role of the church in the just transition? The church holds a unique position in the world. The church has the ability to inform and to transform worldviews uh, through the stories that we tell and the interpretations of our scriptures and our teachings. We can help change people's worldviews. We can help bring different people to the table with something that they have that's in common. One of the projects that we started at the Ministry for Social Justice and that uh, Sister Sue is now a member of as well as GEM, which is Joint Ecological Ministry. This is a collaboration of Catholic religious congregations from across Canada who meet once a year typically to look at this question of what can we do to make a difference in the climate emergency and to ensure that we are living within planetary limits. So GEM has been instrumental in um, helping congregations to divest from fossil fuels, to have shareholder engagement, with fossil fuel industries, 
uh, to look at the role of indigenous rights and sovereignty in the climate movement and the special responsibility that the church holds there, given the, the history of um, the church with indigenous communities here in Canada. The church can also play a role. We, we have unique spaces. We have unique opportunities um, with this campaign that Sister Sue was referencing. The idea is to bring people together to have conversations. The church can do that in a way that other organizations and groups can't. We have these spaces, we have these connections, we can bring folks together. Um, we can also play an important role in framing the climate emergency as a moral and an ethical emergency. Um, so Sister Sue Wilson and Joe Gunn, who works for the Oblates, prepared a document about an ethical framework for a COVID recovery plan. We have a language to ensure that we see this not as just an economic decision of how are we going to recover from COVID. This is a moral imperative. I'm just going to jump to a question about young Catholics, because that's our target audience, although we're very glad to have anyone and everyone listening to our podcast. But what would be one or two concrete things that young Catholics could do to make a difference in bringing about the just transition? You've talked about the church, so now kind of bringing this down to a practical level. What would your hope be for this group of people? Just to, to keep things real concrete and simple, I think one of the easiest and yet quite effective things that, that people can do is to sign this e-petition that will be coming out. It's actually available now, but will be... Um, spreading it throughout their community uh, in, in the next few weeks. So if we can get um, a good, strong number of Canadians across the country um, who are signing on to this, we can send a strong message to, to government that a just recovery um, is something that people all across the country are looking for. Uh, I think an, another thing that can be done is to take the time to go in and have a visit with your MP to talk about a just recovery, to talk about what aspects of it are, are most important to you, and to talk about the harm that would come if we take an austerity approach when we try to move out of this recovery. Um, I mean, that, that's something I, c I can get into in, in more detail. Um, a little later if you want, but I think those are two uh, quick ideas that, that are fairly uh, doable. Thank you. Picking up off of that, you can also educate yourself. The ethical framework for a post-COVID recovery that I referenced earlier is available on the CSJ website, which is www.csj-to.ca, and it's one of the um, it's the first story right now, an ethical framework for a post-COVID recovery. So you can go in and download it. It's about an eleven or twelve-page document. It's an excellent overview of what what we need to do as a country. And have conversations with your friends. So educate yourself about the issues and then start having these conversations and push back a little bit if someone is labeling anyone who um, 
questions the investment in the oil and gas sector. Anybody who says that, you know, that we're leaving, what about Alberta? We're going to leave Alberta behind. Talk to them about what a transition in Alberta can look like and the opportunities there. I know you're going to be speaking with uh, Liam Hildebrand from Iron and Earth. I'm sure he's going to talk a lot about that. So yeah, learn, read, listen, have conversations, talk to your local MP, your MPP, your city councillor, look at what can be done at all of those different levels. And when this, when this campaign is launched in September, that is bringing together Christian churches from across Canada, get involved, sign up, volunteer, Beyond signing the petition, which is great, I think that's the least that everybody listening to this podcast can, can do. You can get more engaged in that campaign. You can host a conversation with your local community. And all of this discussion in these practical ways we can be involved in these large policies that we could be influencing. I'm just wondering, do you ever lose hope? that change can come about? Or how do you keep going? It's an interesting question, because I've actually never been more hopeful than I am right now. The The place we're in right now, the economy is not going to recover on its own. And the federal government is the only entity with the capacity to take a strong role in moving us into recovery. We've seen the government take on that role, protecting people during the pandemic, but we also need to see it now in the recovery. And and uh, the most hopeful thing of all is progressive economists are showing us and telling us that the federal government does have the capacity to step in and make these changes. Things are so bad right now, the, the total value of the goods and services that happen in our country has gone down about 18%. Unemployment is, if, if you consider unemployment, involuntary part-time employment and underutilized workers, it's more like 30% of the people in Canada are not being well-used or well-employed, are not an integral part of the economy that we have right now. So, perversely, it's because we are in such a bad place that I feel so hopeful. The private sector does not have the capacity to ignite a sustained process of reconstruction. And the fact is that in a crisis, the private sector is focused in on protecting their own assets. So progressive economists are saying that right now, if we were to rely on the private sector as part of our recovery, it would be a recipe for a deep depression. And if we try to move from the pandemic into austerity, that too will be a recipe for depression. It was exactly austerity advice, things like, oh, we need to tighten our belts, we need to balance the budgets, we need to cut wages in order to increase the incentive for employers to hire people. That kind of thinking led to the Great Depression in the 1930s. So... What we're seeing right now is that the government, the federal government, really has unlimited financial resources. Canada, like other countries, issues its own currency. That means we have the ability to finance big deficits 
like this year's deficit. Right now, by by the end of this year, Canada's uh, net debt to GDP ratio is expected to rise to about 49%, which is up from 31% last December. And we're going to hear all kinds of messages out there coming from some political parties that, you know, we're this is terrible, we owe so much money, it's devastating for the economy. Well, economists like Jim Stanford are making the point that the situation we're in right now is like the situation after World War II. That's how devastated our economy is. And after World War II, Canada's debt was 130% of GDP. So we're thinking by the end of this year, ours might be 49%. Obviously, we've been in much deeper debt. And Jim Stanford makes the point that Canada never paid back that debt after World War II. In fact, they continued to run deficits after the war. They were running the deficits because they, they had this ambitious post-war reconstruction plan. They had the economy running on all cylinders through physical and social infrastructure projects. So the thing is, the debt was never paid back. But what happened is the debt shrank in significance because the economy was growing so successfully. So the debt kept becoming smaller and smaller, a smaller percentage of the GDP. So... To me, this is what gives us hope is as a country, we've been in this situation before. We've learned from the mistakes that come from taking an austerity approach. We have this vision of, of moving to a just transition that we can create a much better society. We can create a much better relationship with our, with our environment. We can create a much fairer economy. Um, and all that we need to do is to have the, uh, the vision and the, um, and, and the courage to be able to truly step into this moment and make it a life-changing moment for us as, as a society. Thank you. That's so inspirational. <laughs> Leo, where do you see hope or do you have despair? Do you, how do, how do you continue on in your work? Well, I mean, yes, obviously there are moments when it seems overwhelming. <laughs> there are moments when, as a mother, I fear for what kind of a world my children and my grandchildren are going to live in if we don't change things now. That being said, in those moments, what I try to focus on, and overall what gives me the energy and the life and the commitment to do this work day after day after day is that it's not just on my shoulders. This is God's work. This is the work of God. This is the work of the spirit. And we are the hands and feet of God in doing this work. But overall, this is God's work. And I'm doing my part to help make that plan happen. One of the books that we read on a regular basis to my four-year-old is by Archbishop Desmond Tutu, and it's called God's Dream. Beautiful, beautiful book. Highly recommend it to anybody who has uh, small children. 
And it's all about how different people all over the world talk to God in different ways. And we're all trying to make God's dream come true. And when we are kind to others, when we are friendly to others, when we share with others, we are making God's dream come true. And since we started reading this book to my son, he will spontaneously just say to me, you know, mommy, yes, I'm making God's dream come true. <laughs> um, one time when uh, his, his little brother hit him, he said, mommy, Ewan's not making God's dream come true. <laughs> so doing this work is making God's dream come true. A just transition would be God's dream come true. This would be building the kingdom of God here. As Sister Sue mentioned, it's we're at a tipping point. We're at a crisis point, which is scary in a lot of ways, but it is also an opportunity. This is where the idea of creativity of love came from. People were scared, are still scared. We don't know exactly what covid is going to mean for us in the long term how it's going to affect us long term but it is an opportunity for change we live in a world which six months ago if six months ago you would have said that this is the world that we would be living in come summertime you would have laughed scoffed and said oh that's impossible there's no way that, that our lives can change that drastically, that quickly. And so when you live in this impossible world, anything is possible. It's an opportunity for us to dream and to think and create and come up with new ways of living, new ways of being in relationship with one another, new ways of being in relationship with all of creation. So we have to grab this opportunity that has been given to us. A couple of other things that I wanted that have been percolating as we've been talking that I also just kind of want to throw in. Just the creativity as what other, like what young adults can do to be a part of this dream, be a part of this change. The creativity of love started as a social media campaign. So it's a collaboration between the Ministry for Social Justice and the Communications Department. And we have been sharing posts twice a week through the Sisters of St. Joseph's social media handles on our Twitter and our Facebook. And we've also been putting the posts on our website. And so twice a week, we're asking questions about what would a post-COVID world look like? So we're sharing questions, links, ideas, poems. So do follow us and take a look at those posts and interact with them and share them and get use those to inspire you and get those conversations started. Um, something else I would like people to experiment with is as we move into like sister sue was referencing that we're going to get into this like oh we need to clamp down and have austerity versus taking on deficits deficit is not a dirty word <laughs> um but it has been turned into one it's part of this 
new language of us not being citizens anymore. We're taxpayers. It's this political language of, well, what about the taxpayers, the taxpayers? I am a citizen of Canada. And that comes with rights and responsibilities. It comes with buying into the social contract of what it means to be living in this society and having a a social safety net and a welfare system where ideally we are caring for one another and we're making sure that people aren't left behind. So whenever you hear the word taxpayer, I want you to replace it with citizen. Whenever you hear the word deficit, I want you to replace it with the word investment. What we need to do right now is invest in our future. We need to invest in this just transition, invest in making the world a sustainable place. If I can just pick up on that uh, conversation around taxes, I think, um, you know, there's another conversation happening in in the country right now, and it's around the disparity between those who have wealth and those who don't. The Parliamentary Budget Office just recently came out with some statistics that the top 20% of people in Canada own 70% of their wealth. And the bottom 20%, or sorry, the bottom 40% own 1% of their wealth. So we can't go back to that. That can't be the normal that we go back to. Um, this is our moment to start to shift how we're in relationship with each other. And, and there is lots of scope for creating change there. I think the big thing for me right now is for us as Canadians to step up to this moment, to actually see it and understand that we are being given the spiritual and moral challenge of our lives right now. We have this tremendous window opening to create change and later generations look back on how we respond to this moment and it's up to us to shape how they see this moment if we can step up and respond well they will they will uh, hold our generation well i agree i remember you learn about history when you're in school and these like big grand pivotal earth changing world changing moments And we are living in one of those right now. This is our opportunity to change the world and make God's dream come true. Thank you both so much. I feel like there's been so much wisdom and challenge shared with us that you've given us a lot to walk away from this podcast with. So I want to thank you both so much for your time this morning. Well, thanks again, Liam, for your time today. And my first question is, what is Iron and Earth and what is your role in the organization? Yeah, so Iron and Earth is a worker-led movement of oil sands workers and coal workers and Indigenous uh, community members who are really advocating for a prosperous transition towards net zero. And we're really taking action to help ourselves move into these new renewable energy industries. And we, um, we really started up in the oil sands many years ago, I guess four years ago now, 
Uh, I was working as a boilermaker up in Fort McMurray. And um, in 2015, we had a big oil price crash, which led to tens and even a hundred thousand job losses over a period of uh, a few short months. And a group of my coworkers and I decided we really needed to take action and help ourselves diversify into new opportunities. And so we launched Iron and Earth to help ourselves develop training programs that we need to build this new future that we believe in and have a voice in the conversation, really communicating to Canada that a lot of workers do really want this transition to happen. And we're ready to support that. So you mentioned transition, and our sec- second question is, in your own words, what is a just transition, and how has it changed in light of COVID-19? Yeah, so we actually use the term prosperous transition. It's a, a little bit of a reframing of decades-long push to supporting various workers and communities in a transition to a sustainable society. And We define prosperous transition specifically as the process of transforming society and our global economic system to achieve broad-based prosperity and multi-generational sustainability for people and the planet. What that really comes down to is we want to ensure that families, workers, communities, and the economy can be prosperous as we move towards a sustainable society and specifically as we transition towards net zero by 2050. And the really exciting thing is that fossil fuel industry and indigenous workers are really going to play a leading role in building the infrastructure required to make that transition. And that's sort of what gets our team out of bed in the morning and keeps us really passionate about the work that we're doing because we we know that workers like ourselves are going to be required to build this prosperous future and we just need to push to make it happen. Can you say a little more about the Indigenous community involvement in this particular project? I mean, if you look at energy development in over the past few decades or even since the beginning of colonization in Canada and other countries around the world, Indigenous communities have traditionally been not only left out of the economic opportunities, but their lands have been used in contravention of a lot of the treaties that were signed. I think the treaties in Alberta, I believe it's Treaty 7, is an interesting example of that where the treaty states that the land can be used by the settlers up to the depth of a plow. And clearly, a lot of the oil and gas development in those territories has gone much deeper than the depth of a plow, but that hasn't been reconciled. And a lot of these indigenous communities are near a lot of the industrial infrastructure and have been really harmed by the development. Some communities have benefited as well, and some individual Indigenous community members have have certainly benefited. But 
there is incredible need for truth and reconciliation. Truth first being comprehensive understanding of the history to be uh, shared with, with Canadians and for that educational piece to be front and center. And then the reconciliation aspect it is really important as we, we move towards sustainable energy and all of the other climate solutions, including the revitalization of some of our natural areas, absolutely must include the Indigenous communities and, and workers in that process. So early on, we've formed a partnership with the Louis Bull Tribe, a good friend and council member of the Louis Bull Tribe, Desmond Bull, has worked really closely with us and we were able to develop and test one of our first training programs in partnership with that community and we installed some solar panels on the community daycare and we trained a number of the community members uh, alongside a number of fossil fuel industry workers from Edmonton and there was a really wonderful cross-cultural component of the training where we were invited to participate in a sweat lodge ceremony partway through the program. The program was opened with a pipe ceremony, and there was a lot of teachings about what the Indigenous perspectives of these renewable energy resources is in the, in the, in the teachings of the community. As we move forward as an organization, as we move forward as a country, it's of great importance to ensure there's Indigenous leadership and we're working alongside those teachings and individuals moving forward. That's such a thorough answer. That's really wonderful to hear. Our first podcast was with an Indigenous man and so it's just fascinating to me how these topics all intertwine together. It's It's been a real journey and <laughs> uh, we're excited to have you along as well as our listeners. Our third question is, what should people living in the GTA know about communities dependent on oil and gas as they learn about or advocate for a just or prosperous transition? I think I, it's, it would be good for them to understand that it's a very, very dynamic group of people that exist within these communities. I worked in the oil sands for about six years on and off, and... It was always quite fascinating how how multicultural and how diverse these job sites were. And I think a lot of people think of oil and gas workers maybe more recently as the people driving their big trucks to these Greta Thunberg rallies and uh, sort of resisting change. But that's far from the average worker. And I think it's important to really understand that a lot of workers are much more progressive than what they might see on the television. And that there is actually an incredible desire from many of these workers to leave a positive legacy. I mean, before the threat of climate change was a reality, workers in the fossil fuel industry did have a lot of pride in their work and in their industry. And for good reason. They were helping to build the economy and the many privileges that we have 
today. And a lot of the advancement of society has been powered by the fossil fuel industry. So it's no surprise that these workers came to work every day, proud of their skills, proud of their contributions to the country and to the world. But there is a growing awareness of workers in the industry that the products that we are helping to build are damaging to the environment. And there's, I think, I mean, everybody wants to leave a positive legacy. And if you have the awareness that what you're building day to day is contributing to global problem, then you're going to want to help do something about that. So I guess that's just really important to, to understand as, as we move forward. So there's mention in some circles that the just or prosperous transition leaves Alberta behind. How would you respond to this statement? And thank you for starting already to answer this. Yeah, I, I think it couldn't be further from the truth, really. Because if you think about what is going to be required in the future, it's a, a lot of new infrastructure that's going to power our, our, our lives with sustainable energy and it's going to be huge opportunity for tradespeople and also all of the other people that have specialties in mega project development. If you look at a geothermal plant or a biofuel plant, uh, a biomass plant, small-scale hydro, a lot of these technologies it's actually hard to differentiate them from oil and gas technology. If you put a picture of oil refinery beside a biofuel refinery, they look identical. And so it's not a huge leap of the imagination to recognize that it's going to require all of the same workers, not only the blue collar workers, but also the white collar workers doing the project development all the way through to selling the product and decommissioning. The whole life cycle of the project requires the same people that already exist in Alberta. So Alberta actually has one of the biggest competitive advantages amongst all provinces to really participate in building this new future. And one example of that as well is the emerging hydrogen economy. Uh, and a lot of sort of big players are looking at Edmonton as a potential hub for an emerging hydrogen economy. So you're really saying that like Alberta is ripe and ready for this. Yes, absolutely. And even above and beyond the considerations of new technologies that will be required to be built, a huge part of Canada's transition to net zero is definitely going to require oil and gas. And we are going to require a major, major retrofit of all of the industrial facilities so that they can be fit for the future. So that is going to create an incredible amount of employment for everybody already working on those same facilities. I feel like I'm in the wrong sector. This is, <laughs> <laughs> this is exciting. <laughs> exactly. well, that's wonderful. Um, now turning to wages, because there's been some concern around wages. How can we protect wages between work and fossil fuels and in renewables? 
I think there's a couple of different answers to that. In some, in some cases, I'm actually going to use my personal journey as a bit of an example here. I was working in a fabricating shop building infrastructure as a steel fabricator for the oil sands. So that was the majority of the work that we did at that fabricating facility was pressure vessels and heat exchangers and drilling rig platforms and flare stacks. But at one point, we also got the opportunity to build a few different types of renewable energy technologies. Uh, One was an industrial composter, and that utilized waste heat to power the heat needs for some facilities. I was able to build a biomass station that utilized waste wood for power and heat. And I also got the opportunity to build a wind farm weather station. And I made the same wage throughout all of those projects. I was working at the same facility and certainly when I logged in my time, I didn't have to deduct wage for the hours put into the renewable energy technology. So in some cases, the wages are actually just going to stay the same. The companies are going to have to be a little more innovative to be able to bid on these projects and secure the projects to, to keep their employees on the same wages. But I think we'll see a diversification as opposed to a complete transition, similar to what I saw in my fabricating facility. And so that will help protect some wages. In other cases, there are a couple good reports that show that engineers, for example, they pulled data from job boards listing job opportunities for engineers in the oil and gas industry and engineering positions in the solar and wind industries, and there is a wage difference. But it's not as significant as some people think. It's not like half your wage. It's about a 15, sort of maybe 25% wage cut. So in a lot of cases, there will be a bit of a wage difference. But we need to make sure that we are comparing apples to apples to a certain extent. We're not talking about taking an engineer and transitioning them into a laborer position on a solar farm. Labor position on a solar farm could be an excellent opportunity for somebody just getting into a trade or getting into the industry. And no doubt we're going to talk about government next. Governments in the background with the amount of money we're sending to the oil and gas industry too, right? That's going to be elevating those wages. My question to you about government is what single action or change from the government, and you could choose which level or do all three or whatever you decide, What single change or action from government would most benefit the work you do? I think when we look at the role of government in in this moment, we need government support to transform four areas of our economy. And that includes, number one, workers. Secondly, businesses. Thirdly, infrastructure. And fourth, the environment itself. So as we pursue net zero by 2050, all four of those are going to need major upgrades. For the workforce, that's going to be a lot more simple than a lot of people 
currently understand. Uh, we need support from government to implement a national upskilling program so that workers with all of the existing skill sets can participate in five to 10 day rapid upskilling programs so that they can become more aware of the opportunities emerging and develop specialized skills in some of the nuanced aspects of the emerging technologies they can work in. On the businesses side, businesses really need government support so that they can leverage a lot of the existing services that they already offer to the fossil fuel industry to emerging climate solution sectors. And what that could look like is sort of accelerator and incubator programs. And it could also include retooling support so that like a, a good example actually is that fabricating facility that I was talking about. We were bidding on a larger project to build a whole wind farm to build the sort of the steel towers that support the actual turbine blades. And we were going to have to purchase a new set of rollers to build that infrastructure. So it was pretty difficult for us to bid competitively with larger manufacturers based overseas. So the government can come in and help facilities retool and upgrade some of their equipment. And thirdly, infrastructure definitely needs to be retrofitted to be more energy efficient. That's one of the best sort of investments we can really make is in energy efficiency. And government can play a strong role there in ensuring that the financing is sustainable for, for businesses and owners to invest in those types of projects. And fourthly, environment can, can really be revitalized in a number of ways. And there's a big movement right now towards nature-based solutions. And we definitely need government support to ensure that some of the current logging practices can be transformed and that some of our environmental management in general can transition from being destructive to being revitalizing. These are such big topics. What keeps you going, Liam, when you're, I don't know, if you get down, if you get discouraged, but how do you, how do you keep yourself going in terms of the, the change that you desire to see and where we are and bridging that gap? How do you keep going? It's been a grind at times for sure to get this off the ground. And I think every new worker that joins our organization with such a powerful, unique story of how they want to commit their lives uh, and transition from fossil fuels to renewable energy is, is really a, a big inspiration for me. And just to see that our movement is is growing and is of of really critical importance right now. I think also just always thinking back to the conversations in in the lunchroom where my coworkers and I really had this epiphany of the fact that we are are needed in this moment to take leadership and it's really up to us. Nobody else is going to do it for us 
the workforce has to come together and create a platform for ourselves and a voice for ourselves. And ultimately, I think it's really about avoiding runaway climate change. I want to make sure that I've done everything possible within my life to ensure that we avoid that really terrible potential scenario. And my technical retirement date of 65 years old is actually on the year 2050. So I'm really pushing to be able to retire at 65 and, and know that we've, we've reached net zero and we can focus on the new global challenges that I'm sure will emerge between now and then. <laughs> I have a feeling you won't be uh, out fishing much <laughs> once you do retire. <laughs> or maybe you will. Maybe you're a fisherman. I don't know. <laughs> That's really inspiring what keeps you going and your team. How do you view the faith communities in the just or prosperous transition? It's an interesting question for me because I was raised in a Christian family, actually. Um, my the majority of my immediate family and my extended family are are christian and when i was sort of growing up in in the church i always was inspired by the concept that god asks christians to be stewards of the earth and i think that that is extremely prominent in other religions as well, and also the traditional teachings of indigenous uh, communities. And so I think there's an incredibly important role for all faith communities to, to really acknowledge that. But unfortunately, I, I think, especially just based on my experience in particular, the, the Western Christian philosophy veered more towards separation from nature, that God somehow made us these special entities that are separate from nature. And I think that really distanced many Christians from the emphasis of being stewards and really being a part of nature. And I actually, I'm no longer a Christian in the biblical sense. I do have some spiritual leanings and I'm always exploring and to make my mom happy I am actually currently reading The Universal Christ by Richard Rohr. Okay. And I really I'm really enjoying that book so far. I really enjoy sort of this concept that Christianity could potentially move more towards this comprehensive philosophy of oneness with nature. And it was a really, really difficult decision to move away from the church and sort of leave my faith. And the, the reason why that was so hard was because I was leaving my community, really. And so I think that community piece is the real strength that the faith communities have is like no other social structure in, in, in the world, I think faith communities in particular are an incredible example of uh, sort of strength and power 
in numbers. I don't think that that strength or that power has been leveraged effectively yet towards advocating and taking action towards building a prosperous future for everybody and including the environment. So I think if that power could be leveraged, that could really change the world pretty rapidly. So I I do have a lot of hope that that can be uh, possible sooner than later. I I feel like we could go in a few different directions with this conversation. I'm thinking of Sister Sue Wilson, who is going to be connected to this podcast. And she talked about our care for the earth as being central to our faith. And it's true, you don't hear that often. And so I hear that from you that, you know, our care for the whole world, uh, our care for neighbor actually encompasses the work that you're doing very much so. Absolutely. I partly think that my being raised in the Christian faith might have had a contribution to why I've ended up in a position to start Iron and Earth in some ways. So I'm not sure what kind of connection is there, but I think maybe I was inspired by experiencing that sort of community strength. And um, yeah, so happy to share. Yeah, that's wonderful. I remember as a child, there was a professor who came to our church and he took us out to the shores of Georgian Bay and we looked at the fossils that were there in the rocks and talked about the different animals that had been there many, many years ago. And it's true, the way that our church and our parents influence us is pretty huge. And so no doubt that's impacted the way that, you know, you've, well, in my opinion, it's definitely connected. You might not call it this, but I, I think it's the work of, of God to be doing what you're doing, caring for the world that you the way that you are. Yeah, again, it might not be the way that you think about it when you wake up in the morning, but I think very much there's a tie there. For sure. Yeah, I think we define might define it differently, but I appreciate that, and I like that idea. I will remember your passion for 2050, 65 years old and net zero. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's been a real joy to chat with you. Yeah, amazing. Thanks so much for including us in your series. And I I hope the listeners can gain new perspectives through it. And hopefully it can all help to catalyze that, that new potential, really powerful positive direction that faith communities could go in supporting this prosperous transition. Okay, so thanks so much, Miranda, for your time today. We're so grateful. Um, Tell us about the Community Climate Council. Sure. So the Community Climate Council is youth-founded, nonpartisan, and it's a non-governmental organization based in Peel region. And we're fairly young. We're about six months old. But the reason we started was because after speaking to people at the region of Peel and municipal leaders, uh, specifically at the climate change and energy division at the region, we realized that there was a gap between community building and a lack of youth presence at delegations. And so we wanted to bridge those two things together. And we weren't quite sure how, but in the meantime, it was September, which is when the climate strikes were happening. So we decided to make our own. So purely on social media, 
We advertised on Instagram and Facebook. We set a location at downtown Brampton for youth to come out and contribute to the protests. Because, of course, so many people in Peel region, the only option they would have is to commute to downtown Toronto, which isn't very feasible, um, especially during school hours. So we wanted to make something local and kind of see what happens. And as the co-founders and I were driving to downtown Brampton, we were in awe as we saw hundreds of teenagers just lined down the streets with signs in their hand, and we couldn't believe it. We were like, what? Did we make this happen? We couldn't believe it. And it just really taught us two things. That one, people in our community do care, and they do think about the climate. And two, that sense of community is there. We just need to create events to make them happen and to bring people together. And that was really when we said, okay, this is the council that um, we need to make. We want people to have that next step to go to because after the protests were as amazing as they were, um, three hours of marching and even doing a pickup at Gage Park with litter, um, they didn't have a next step to follow through. So they had this passion and advocacy, but they wanted a next step to kind of formalize that action. So we wanted to create this council to do that. And we'd like to hopefully um, inform climate policy and bridge the gap between the public's understanding of what's happening in our municipality, as well as climate literacy and climate change at a local level on the larger scale. So that's how we were formed. And currently what we've been doing is a lot of virtual activities. So of course, with COVID-19, we had to transition to the online platform. And what we've been doing uh, right now, we're running a camp climate and it's an eight week virtual campaign. Each week has a different sustainability or environmental theme. And we host webinars, we have activities for children and resources online. And it really is open to all. We are going for an intergenerational approach in our work. And so that is just one avenue that we're doing that. Other ways are we've just opened up a book club. So a lot of uh, novels that are climate focused. And thirdly, we have a art contest. And that one is geared more for youth. And youth would actually get a chance to win a subscription to a launch um, children's books. By Ethicool. Ethicool is the name of the publisher and they're focused on ethical publishing and other issues. So they're really great. And then lastly, we have our zine. So that's an online magazine that focuses on the climate movement. So that could be anything from a picture of your backyard showing uh, resilience in food security, or it can be a drawing of your favorite animal, or even um, academic literature. So if you have anything that you've written, like essays or anything for school, and it's kind of just sitting on your computer and you'd like to bring it forward, we're looking for that as well. So yeah, that's a little bit about who we are. That's amazing. And you haven't mentioned this, but we will. You are actually one of the founders. So that's uh, a big congrats to you. That's amazing work that's happening. Thank you. Thank you for outlining some of the local solutions that can happen because climate change is such a big topic. It can feel overwhelming. So you've really given us some concrete community-led, youth-led solutions to climate change. In your own words, what is the just transition for young people? So the just transition really stemmed from lack of equity and injustice issues. Later on, it kind of became really focused in the climate movement, but it does stem from environmental justice. 
And it began from labor unions and environmental um, justice leaders and minorities and people of color, not only for youth as a whole, but specific to youth in Peel, who are mostly people of color or immigrants. It is key to what we're doing because their voices need to be heard and their problems need to be addressed in order for us to tackle climate change effectively. If we only tackle it with a few people in mind, then it, it just is in, an ineffective approach for sure. So specifically for youth, um, the first thing that I think about all the time is school and just how expensive it is to go to school, commute to school, live on residence, everything in that realm. And then also thinking about international students and just how much more expensive it is for them. And, you know, we could have so many academics in the climate um, realm or even in the environmental realm who just simply can't afford what we're offering right now. And it's a bit of a shame. But yeah, I think that that's pretty much what stands out to me personally. It's not my expertise, but... Oh, thank you. That's great. Shifting gears just a little bit, how can economic models like a circular economy or donut model impact your work? So I think it impacts every aspect of life as a whole, not just the work that I'm doing. What it really is, is it's transitioning outputs and waste into inputs. And so with this, there's a huge lack of waste. Uh, production. And that's really what the key is, is just bringing outputs back into inputs and having that positive feedback loop. So with my work in particular, running a nonprofit, especially from the virtual sense right now, um, I can't think of the physical waste aspects that it would be enhancing. However, it literally would change every sense of life as we know it in the best way. And so that's also where just transition kind of links into that is how do we make that transition a smooth one and not something that drastically changes um, the system so that it's an equitable transformation. So I think it's a huge change and it would be really great for Peel to employ and they have been trying um, as far as we know and it's it's definitely a great step forward. And maybe just for our listeners who don't know, could you describe what the donut model is or the circular economy? Yeah, so from my understanding, it really is just making outputs. So if you think about waste um, extraction or any other output from product manufacturing, it really does take those and bring them back into inputs so that that waste is actually eliminated. So looking at a loop economy is really just, I'll just give like a really simple example. Let's say, you know, when we used to have milk in glass bottles and you'd keep them at the front door and they would be refilled, that is a huge way to eliminate waste, and that contributes to a loop cycle because that is being reused. So you aren't throwing away your plastic bag full of milk, which goes into recycling, quote-unquote, because as we know, recycling is not as effective as it should be or it could be. So we're really trying to step away from even the recycling model that we currently have because it is ineffective and just trying to reuse what we currently have. What about apathy, maybe in youth or the general public around the topic of climate change? How do you approach this? Yeah, so I think I can give an example of when I delegated in October. The apathy wasn't, of course, completely obvious. But in some counselors' answers, you can kind of see where different priorities were shifted. Um, And that can come from a sense of apathy, whether it be for wildlife or other beings even. And the way that I think that is really effective to deal with this is to frame climate change as a health issue and a health concern. And it is. Um, it really is a human health issue. And if we you know, don't care about others suffering around the world or wildlife populations collapsing, at the very least, I'm sure that everyone holds their health as their number one priority, no matter 
what race you are, where you stand in the political realm, health is number one. And that really is the root of the issue. It really is human health. Um, so when we think about droughts or heat waves, uh, lack of water security, resources, so many other things that are currently impacting our health. And I'll just give a local example, you know, with ticks and Lyme disease in Ontario, that truly is a really good approach, in my opinion, and a good solution if we can start reframing the discussion surrounding health. I think that gets those people in the conversation. Okay, fantastic. I like your strategy. Thank you. <laughs> so I'm curious, how did you become so passionate about this topic? So can you share a bit about your journey? Yeah, so I think I was always involved and concerned about um, wildlife and the beings around us. And I was always fascinated about how amazing they are. And as I learned about them, you know, throughout childhood and being connected to wild spaces, as I grew up realizing how quickly we are changing populations and creating extinctions and whatnot, that's really what um, was a huge concern to me. So it really started with wildlife conservation. And then I realized that um, the Western framework of what conservation is, is very different than the indigenous definition and a lot of other definitions. And I was questioning what kind of system I was inherently contributing to, whether it be um, the removal of indigenous land and how it's managed and whatnot. So just thinking about that from a social justice kind of perspective started to get me thinking about it. And um, you really can't separate climate change from conservation. It's definitely not something that can be done. And just realizing all of the different impacts, I think, that are happening around the world currently and in the past that are related to climate change is what really got me involved. You know, just thinking about all the vulnerable populations around the world who are suffering currently. And we're sitting in Canada just kind of thinking, oh, climate change isn't here yet. It's still yet to come. It just didn't seem fair to me at all. While people are literally having their fisheries collapsing or suffering through droughts or going through uh, lots of natural disasters and coastal flooding and so many other issues. When I say this, I think particularly with the Caribbean, which is where some of my research focus on, you know, climate change was a few years ago for them. And so it just didn't seem fair that us as a developed nation who are contributing most to these emissions are like watching other people suffer without helping. That's really what uh, got me involved in this work. And it definitely isn't separate from conservation. So that is still one of my passions, but uh, that is how that transition happened. I wonder if, and maybe you have said all you want to say, but I wonder if there's more you could share about what you've learned about the Indigenous communities and the worldview that you mentioned. Definitely. So a huge difference. Well, if we look at the construction of conservation parks and just how they were first developed, they were only formed because indigenous groups were forced out of the lands that they live on. So when we think about Banff National Park and any other national park in Canada, really, they were forced out of their lands that are extremely sacred to them. Um, they understand the plants, the medicines, the animals the best. They have paths that we don't see or, or can ever like understand how to travel to different ceremonial areas. So they were for forcibly removed from those places and then excluded so these areas were seen as pristine and they had to be untouched, no human contact. And that was the way conservation was kind of started. But when I speak to other people who are indigenous, they understand conservation to be where humans are a part of the ecosystem. And we do need to harvest certain things at certain times or burn um, areas at certain times in order to conserve to the maximum potential that we can. 
So without allowing this to happen and excluding voices of those who understand the land best is definitely detrimental. And that's kind of where I started to rethink my job or positionality in what I do, I guess, a little bit. But um, even that aside, just thinking about, and this is also a little bit of what I researched in my master's, but the from the American context, there have been Hispanic groups who have felt very intimidated by the uniform that conservation park rangers have. And a lot of them actually have guns on them. And so that could be extremely intimidating for a lot of people. And secondly, when we think about the black population and segregation, they definitely were not allowed at parks. And even when they were, it was still a segregated space. So when we think about access today, you know, a lot of people of color and minorities, if they have a car full of like, let's say, eight family members, and they want to go to a park, and it's $7 a person, that just isn't affordable for everybody. And so even access to parks today is an issue. And it really does all stem from that. You mentioned your research that you've done. Uh, you mentioned a couple times. I wonder if you just want to share a bit more about that. Sure, I'd love to. So um, my paper was looking at the relationship between biodiversity conservation and Instagram, actually. And then it branched off into three chapters. So the first one looked at park management. So when people are geotagging uh, different spaces, how does that impact certain vulnerable areas? So if we think about, you know, the poppy field in California, they are only equipped to manage about 300 people or so at a park. They simply don't have the infrastructure for thousands and thousands of people, which they have been seeing. So it really has been changing park management strategies and conservation parks as a whole. There's also safety things involved and whatnot, but I won't get into the details. That's what chapter one was about. Chapter two looked at science communication. So scientists around the world, I interviewed 18 of them to kind of see how they were using Instagram as a platform to educate others about climate issues and environmental issues. And it's an incredible platform in terms of education, what you can do with it. I kind of looked through the pros and cons. And finally, I focused on environmental education. So I have a Instagram page. It's at wildandfree.mb. And I use that platform to educate others on uh, the biodiversity around us, really simple things in your backyard and just how amazing they are and give people a chance to um, acknowledge that. You know, we're scrolling on our phones every day. Why not take a few seconds out of your day to learn something amazing about, you know, a butterfly that you constantly see but know nothing about? So really connecting uh, people back to nature to make them feel a bit more compassionate to conservation and climate mitigation. That's really innovative. Now, you've inspired us, and your story is quite inspirational. I'm just wondering, are there particular youths or youth that you've been inspired by in the work that you're doing? Definitely. The, the first one, hands down, is when we organized that strike in September, and they were all just holding those signs out. They took time out of their school day. I didn't have to do that when I was in high school. When we were in high school, we weren't extremely concerned um, about climate change as much as the youth are today. So that was incredible. And also just seeing the teachers who supported them coming to our strike, that was great. But recently, I also had an eighth grader. He just graduated, and he wanted to get involved with the council. And he told me that he's developed a website to get people in Oakville to transition to meatless Mondays. So trying to reduce their carbon footprint by going vegetarian just once a week. And he's in grade eight. He has a whole website. He's getting people to sign up. It's incredible. And he, right now, he... Um, is a part of our camp climate and he just produced seven different resources 
for youth. And what better way to do that than have a youth involved who knows what youth like right now. So he made um, experiments with um, creating your own backyard garden, coloring pages of environmental people of color that people should know. So many other things. You can check it out on our website, but hands down, that really inspired me. Meatless Mondays in Oakville. Fantastic. (laughs) I'm curious about... You know, this podcast is is for young adults, young Catholic adults, but really anyone. In Toronto, in the GTA, what are some next steps that we could take? If we're saying, you know, I'm at home, I'm listening to this podcast, what could I be doing to take action on this big topic? What would you suggest? I would say, one, uh, change the conversation within your households. We're all at home right now, so what better way to start than with your local communities? I think we usually oversee the power that we have um, within our families and really our families are the people who trust us and they know that we're valid sources of information and then if not then into your community if you can in virtual ways whether it's on the phone and whatnot but there's also petitions that can be signed virtually getting involved in webinars and watching other things online there's tons of free courses online that are offered as well where you can get certificates you know boost your resume a little or just um, increase your knowledge in any realm, really, whether it's indigenous knowledge, plants, medicine, climate change and health. There's been so many that I've been taking personally. So I definitely recommend that. Well, I just want to thank you for the energy and enthusiasm that you bring to this topic. Uh, It's really wonderful. And at this point in time, we're going to wrap up our conversation. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for having me today. This was great. Okay, thanks, Miranda. Could you hear it? The passion and creativity at work in the voices of our guests. Could you hear all the places where these diverse individuals from very different organizations and sectors intersected? You should know that none of them ever heard any of the other conversations. We are filled with inspiration and warmth and we hope you enjoyed listening. Stay tuned on our website for more details about upcoming episodes and our virtual town hall. We extend our deepest thanks to Sister Sue, Leah, Liam, and Miranda for sharing with us, and thank you for listening.